Welcome to the JMS Podcast. Today's guest is David Kelly. Had a great talk with David Kelly. He was very insightful about comedy and how he works. And it's definitely stuff I want to use when I, you know, get back to comedy. You know, I'm not saying I was gone from comedy. I've just been so busy with so many other projects. I hadn't had time to go do comedy. But lately I've been thinking, I was like, you know, I haven't done it for a while. I truly get back on it. I, I miss it. I truly do. But yeah, David Kelly. Look forward to that conversation. Thanksgiving just passed. Uh, it was yesterday. And uh, hopefully everybody spent it well. I spent it okay. I spent it alone in my room with a whole bottle of wine. Don't get me wrong. I had lots of Thanksgiving food. Thank you. But, you know, I just got out of work and I, I got home. And by that time, my family all finished their, their deal. So I just got <laughs> leftovers and just spent the night listening to music on, on YouTube. And I, I had a blast, honestly. Granted, I wish I had somebody there, but, you know, it's life. It's always next year. It's a little weird right now. Uh, right, right now, I'm going through this silent treatment with, with somebody, and uh, she's uh, she's been very distant with me. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. I'm just giving her space. Because uh, I, I fucked up, you know. I was being a dick, um, and then I was like, she started responding to my messages. So I was like, okay, maybe she needs space. So hopefully hopefully I won't lose her, but stay tuned to find out. <laughs> but then again, I'm thinking, about, I haven't had the silent treatment for a while. You know, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't had a somebody I cared for so much give me the silent treatment before. So I'm kind of like, oh, so, I, so this is what it feels like. I'm remembering. I'm feeling nostalgic. Silent treatment nostalgia. This podcast has this thing on YouTube called Sound Sessions. If you don't know what it is, it's me filming our musical guest perform a song out there in the wild. Marty Murillo hits me up. He says he wants to do a sound session. I'm like, you know what, man? Yes, because Marty Murillo is awesome. He's the nicest musician I know, and he's super talented. And I'd love to have him as part of a JMS podcast sound session. And he recommended the Caltrain station. So sure enough, um, I went to the Caltrain station, filmed him performing. And I think uh, I... And as I was there, I was like, you know what? This is pretty awesome, you know, like... Filming in, in a train station reminds me of those film noirs from the 50s. So I made it black and white. And I'm really happy with it. So check it out on YouTube. JMS Podcast Sound Sessions. Check it out. Please like it. Please don't leave me too harsh of YouTube comments. Because it can get pretty nasty on YouTube. And follow this podcast if you haven't already. On Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Where else? SoundCloud. iTunes. Whatever. Just don't follow me personally. Because I have a boring life. I don't think you'll enjoy that very much. But, yeah. I injured my foot, too. Piece of shit. I injured my foot. You know, what sucks? I injured myself in the non-coolest way. Like, you know, usually people have a story when they injure themselves. Nope, not me. I injured it. How? Jogging. Yeah. Fucking A. Thought jogging is supposed to strengthen your limbs. Nope. So, I'll be out of commission for a while. But, enough of that. Let's see what David Kelly's up to.
okay? You're yeah. comfortable? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanksgiving went well? Yeah, it went with well. friends? Yeah, friends. My mom came to visit from Canada, and we had a couple of families over. Your mom visited from Canada? Yes. So are you Canadian? Yes, I'm from Vancouver, Canada. Vancouver, Canada. Interesting. How was it growing up over there? Oh, very nice. It was um, a lot of similarities to, between Vancouver and San Francisco. Are they very similar? Is in terms of climate, in terms of um, uh, the makeup of the people, um, it's the same sort of attitude. How uh, so? Well, it's um, politically is lower left-leaning than other oh, parts of the country. Very liberal. You're liberal, yeah. Uh, um, perhaps a little too liberal? No. Just just uh, the right amount of... Yeah, yeah, just... just It's not extreme, but uh, liberal in Canada is a little more left than it is in the United States. Um, so... I consider the politics in Berkeley to be something I'm used to, oh, yeah. whereas the United States is considered quite far off the spectrum. Uh-huh. Um, and there's also a large Asian population in Vancouver, Chinese and South Asian and uh, Indian people. And so, Just like San Francisco. Yeah, so like, ethnic restaurants and stuff is something I'm used to and grew up with. Is that where you are born and raised? Yes, it was. Okay. Uh, with your mom and your dad? Yeah, yeah. What do they do for a living? Uh, my father was a futures broker, which is like, like a stockbroker, but with commodities. Do you say future broker? The term is future, so they're they're um, they're brokering people, the future. Future, yeah. So someone would needs to buy a, a train uh, a train car full of lumber mm-hmm. to to put it to, to uh, mill into products, and but between the time they make the purchase and the time the train car arrives can be two or three weeks, and the price can change of the lumber on the market while it's on the way to, to well, get sold. Way to get there. Wow. So so, uh-huh. so they protect themselves by doing the reverse trade in the futures market. So the it's called a hedge. Uh-huh. So the idea is that you don't if you if the price goes up in cash, it goes you you uh you uh, uh, purchase against that in the futures market so that you make if you make a profit in cash, you make a loss in futures or you make a loss in cash, you make a profit in futures. So it comes out to netting out to zero. It's the idea. So you don't take a risk on the price changing. That's a very interesting yeah. concept that, so, you, that you're bargaining for the prices that not today, but two weeks from now. Three weeks from now, so yeah, you, so you can lock your price in. Uh-huh. And so by the time you are commercially ready to receive the product, you haven't taken a risk on the price changing. Wow, it's just it's just the way things go. And so it's used and in, been used in industry for a hundred years. Yeah. And I obviously but did not people, know about but it. But people speculate in futures, and it's a good way to lose Is it? Th- hundreds of thousands of dollars overnight if you're not careful, yeah. Well, it's just like <laughs> Wall Street, right? It's just like regular brokering. It's it's a, it's a little more complex because a lot of borrowed money. So anyway, it was a very high-pressure job. He was he was a commissioned salesman. Um, he did very well, and then it, as it goes with commissioned sales, it, it started to decline because it's really hard to keep up that intensity more, more than seven or eight years. Yeah. And so, actually, so... Um, when he was doing well, I was a teenager, and so we lived in a nice part of town and went to a nice school and had a nice growing up. And then when things started to fall apart, he, I was in university, and by that time I was kind of self-sufficient, so it was okay. From from my point of view, it didn't change what I was doing. But he had a difficult uh, life as a, as a senior because um, things didn't go the way he could have in terms of um, yeah. like they would if he had been a corporate executive, for example. And my mother was... Uh, a manager than an executive for a small corporation, and she actually did very well. She's had a very nice retirement. So my wow. dad, my dad passed away a couple of years ago. My mom's with me right now. Oh, and 
Yeah. Great. Uh, well, my condolences on your father passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of your parents were in the corporate world in some way or another. Yeah. yeah. So you grew up with that culture? Well, the professional culture. Like professional the, culture. Um, so people I went to school with were expected to become lawyers, dentists, you know, accountants, that, that sort of people. Yeah. Um, in fact, many of my friends from university got very heavily involved in real estate, which is something I don't find very interesting. Um, Neither do I, by the way. Yeah. And so, um, it, 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 that, that, that's, that's the community I come from is the professionals. And so in my current job at Cisco Systems, which I've been working there for 15 years, I'm pretty comfortable with the customers. I know kind of what to expect in that, in that kind of world. Um, it, it's not an ownership. Like there's another type of people that where everybody owns a business Like you see that, that kind of culture elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen that here in San Jose and I've seen it also in Vancouver, but there was very few people like that when I grew up it was mostly the, the aim of my schooling was to become a professional. That was the way we were all taught. Yeah. yeah Working was, for someone else. Yeah. Or, and as a, at a professional level. Exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. That was the expectation. Are you, uh, how many siblings do you have? I have one brother. One older or younger? Yeah, younger brother. Yeah. Younger brother. Uh, does he also in, in, um, corporate, whatever, professional he, as he, you? He, um, does a number of different, 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 a number of different things. He's very clever and he's a good writer and he writes some, um, articles for some newspapers like, uh, I think he appears in the San Francisco Examiner occasionally. Oh, wow. So he's a columnist. Columnist, yeah. And he also uh, does a number of different things like uh, he's video and uh, he, he makes per, uh, commercial videos for people. Mm-hmm. So um, he, don't, it's really hard to put in a, put your finger on what well, he does, but he's self, put it this way, self-employed and does a number of different things. Uh, so he's somewhat of a filmmaker, you said. Yeah. Because he does corporate videos. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, David, explain to me how does a man who grew up in the professional world turn to comedy? Oh. Well, um, I've always enjoyed speaking in front of people. And part of the job I do at Cisco involves a lot of speaking in front of sales or customers or partners. And so the first half of of, uh, entertaining an audience, I already came into comedy with that. Um, the, the part about actually doing stand-up came from, uh, there was a number of people who passed away in our family over a few, over a very short period of time. Some were elderly and some had, got sick with cancer, but we had like a, about five funerals over about 18 months or, t- or two years. Mm. And what was interesting was even though we were at say a celebration of life, people wanted to laugh. Right. 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 And I thought... If I can make them laugh in a setting like this, I'd always thought about, wouldn't it be kind of cool to go into stand-up comedy? And I had no idea how to go about it. I didn't know what existed. And so when I came back from the fifth one of these funerals, where I'm usually expected to be one of the people presenting, um, I looked up, what you know, is there such a thing as a amateur night or something? And I stumbled across open mics. And there was an open mic at the Bamboo Lounge at the time, which is at the... Uh, at the time, the airport it's called the San Jose Silicon Valley Airport Hotel, which is uh, close to Gish and, and First. Mm, okay. Um, I'm not sure. It's called the Bamboo Lounge. And the mic was being run by a fellow named Jeff Ochoa. And he had a mixture of musicians and comedy and comedians. And all the comedians wanted to go on first so they could go elsewhere. Yeah. And then the rest of the 
It's usually how it goes. Positions, yeah. yeah. Always on the go. And I really wasn't planning to get really that deeply into it. I was just thinking I'd go once a week and try some stuff out and see how it went. And then I started to um, meet people. And there was uh, a, another open mic that's no longer running called the Tortuga Lounge, which is over on the Alameda at the Super 8 Hotel. It's an awful hotel with this, this room. And the guy running it was Pete Munoz. And so I could walk there from home. This is two years ago. So you live in the area of the Alameda? Yeah, I live near, in Rose Garden. Wow, okay, that's great. And um, so I could walk to this mic. And then that mic ended, and he said, well, I'm doing this thing at Woodham's on Monday nights. And then you start learning that, well, you know what? There's actually also a place called Cafe Frascati in downtown San Jose. You just start talking to people, where are they going? Where are they coming from? And so on. Then you'll learn that, well, people are trying to do Cafe Frascati early and do Woodham's early. So you can take off to Santa Cruz and do the Poet and Patriot on Monday nights. So you start learning that um, it's possible to do 11 or 12 open mics a week if you want to. If you got the time, you got the time and, and you have the money to sustain yourself. And you want to do the driving. And <laughs> you could drive the gas. Yes. Theoretically, yes, you can. So if I didn't want to drive, and especially like where we are here, which is um, close to Milpitas, there's, there's still um, about four or five a week you can do a very short distance from here. Mm-hmm. So what it became was it was um, started to be easier to arrange it so I could do three in an evening. And when you get to know the hosts and you set up an advance, look, I, can I come on first or second so I can leave quickly and go to the next one? Usually pretty accommodating. Like you understand why people want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was reaching a point where uh, the material was humorous and I was getting a good response to the audience after but I wasn't getting the response during the the set that I wanted. I was getting smiling nods rather than laughing out loud. And I didn't know... Silence is always the worst for me. Like When people are quiet and I'm performing, I, I definitely get more nervous. I was kind of used to it because that's what you're used to seeing in presentations. Uh-huh. Um, so it wasn't didn't that didn't bother me that much, except I thought um, there must be a next level. There must be something doing... Uh, could be doing better to actually make them laugh out loud in the middle of the show. And so um, this fellow named Neil Lieberman was advertising himself on Facebook as the comedy coach. And and his pitch the was... The comedy coach. The comedy coach. Uh-huh. And his pitch was, if you're already trying this, I can make you better. I don't know if I... He doesn't know if he can make someone who's straight-laced into a comedian, even though he, he has tried it at seminars at professional businesses. Um but his angle was, I can show you the actual technique of doing this. There is a technique for being a stand-up comedian. Now, there isn't a syllabus because unlike other forms of writing, like technical writing, mm-hmm. I could show 20 people in a room the technique for technical writing, and it's okay if it all comes out looking the same because that's the intention of technical writing was to instruct people how to do something complicated in a simple, a simple language. But comedy is such a personal thing that even though there are some guidelines everybody can use, the actual material needs to be original and you need to come across as an extension of yourself. Exactly. Now, yes. if you're really clever, you can create a character that isn't your r- real personality, then you can go into a persona when you're performing. That's really hard. And there are people who, who can do that. There are people who make a really good living as, a, as an alternate Have persona. Have you tried that route? I've tried to, I played around with it, but not it's not seriously, no. No, okay. Um, I found enough trouble just to be myself. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Um, 
so for those who are interested in more detail, it's, it's worth reading what Neil puts up. Um, is he from the South Bay? He's actually in San Francisco. San Francisco. So you went up there to meet him. Yeah, so I go there once a week now. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like a routine for you to I, go meet your, your uh, comedy coach. Comedy coach. And I pay him a fee. And it isn't cheap, but um, I figure in the last year and a half, he's probably saved me five or six years of trying to figure it out myself. Okay, great. Because it's very, it's, um, you do so much writing a week. You, he wants you to do an hour a day of writing. So I, I pumped it up to five to 7,000 words a week. Most of it you throw on the floor because it's just first draft, whatever comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. And what you're trying to really do is see if you can get four or five decent jokes a week that you could use in front of an audience. So I might write 300 jokes a week and throw most of them away and keep four or five. 300 jokes a week? Yeah. Wow, how do you do that? That's you just, amazing. You just sit down and you're right. Most of them aren't, aren't you got to realize, most of these jokes aren't funny. Interesting. Most, most of the jokes I write and throw away, you wouldn't think, why do you even bother? So it's more reason, about quantity. It's a numbers game. Well, it is a numbers game. It's sort of like, um, with Italian sales is, uh, when, I, I, when I was back in the 80s and I was trying to be, be in sales, you know, Michael Jordan makes so many shots in a game and all the big hitters in baseballs also like Barry, right. Barry Bonds are also the guys who strike out the most too it's about the averages yeah and Got so it. so they're up to plate a lot they're shooting a lot in basketball so the fact they're shooting so much with a reasonable average they're making their shots now there's a lot of skill and stuff involved in that too it's a very simple minded analogy but um, what I found is if you can clear the garbage out of your head it's just things that, that you're running around your head and, and shred it down then sometimes it creates a clear path to something that's just really useful. Got it. Or, it's a tactic, uh, usually in writing. It's called a free writing. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Why are you talk? The way you're talking about this, it's stuff that I really relate to when I do screenwriting, when I do poetry, when I do music, because it's very similar. Where where you're just um, trying to pull out stuff and random stuff, but mm -hmm. then you start shaving off, you start cutting down, then you find something like that. And just like everything else, there is structure. Screenwriting, there is structure. People complain that it's formulaic, but that's not the idea of it. The idea of it is you're, build, you're building a skeleton, and it's you and your experience or your, your personality that fills up the organs, the skin, and, and the, it eventually creates the body that what is your, your work. Right. So here's an ex example of something I may, may or may not use. It's humorous. It may not be all that funny. Um, I've noticed when I've gone wine tasting at different regions like Livermore or up in Napa and so on, that when they pour for you, they expect you to be there like as if it was a pub because they're now charging you for the tasting. And sometimes I'm driving a long way. I don't want a full tasting. I just want a, a couple of sips. So I can just taste the wine. Mm -hmm. So I said, don't pour me a full serving. Just pour me enough to taste it. Oh, you really want to taste? Like, like my goodness, someone actually wants to taste because everybody else is like having a time like they are in the pub. Might as well pull the dartboard, right? Yeah. And the original idea of tasting was actually taste the wine, not to have a party in the tasting room. Right. So the joke is, isn't it interesting how many, and then you notice the pubs are getting upscale in town and the wine tasting rooms are quite upscale in some of these wineries. So isn't it interesting how many of the tasting rooms are taking on the atmosphere of a pub and many pubs are taking on the atmosphere of a tasting room. Yeah. And then the punchline is I never expected to get tasting notes for Bud Light. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, so that's kind of like, I took this observation <laughs> yeah. of this public atmosphere, pub like atmosphere in the, in the tasting room. And twisted it like a tasting room atmosphere in a pub, and tasting notes of what they give you for a certain wine. Well, yeah. it's ridiculous getting for Bud Light. Right, right. Because there's a lot of craft beer coming out these days. Yes, and, and Budweiser bought into the craft beer industry. Have they? Yeah, they bought it big time. Like, like 
well, I know they got into the margarita industry. They had these uh, small canned, uh, like what that size of, mm. of uh, Bud Light uh, margarita strawberry, which are actually pretty good, and they pack a punch. They, they got me tipsy. You know, talking about wine, Thanksgiving yesterday, for the first time I had Francis Ford Coppola wine. You ever oh, had yeah. wine from Francis Ford Coppola? You like it? Yeah, which one did you have? Uh, the one he named after his daughter, Sophia. Okay, yeah. Have you had that? I may have tasted it, yeah. Um, they... I drank the whole bottle. Oh, really? By yourself? <laughs> By myself. I spent Thanksgiving in my room. Oh, did you? Uh, I did. And I just had the entire bottle. That sounds like and a, and I fr- it sounds like a good Very time. thankful experience. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But uh, I was... Uh, I drank it. I was like, you know what? It's not like Merlot. Like, I usually, you know, feel it after a couple, you know, minutes. I was like, nothing. Oh, this is, this is cheap. But sure enough, half an hour later, it hit. And it hit hard. I was like, wow, Francis Ford Coppola, you are a genius. I don't know. So when he first opened the winery, at least when I was first aware of it in the early part of the last decade, what we call the 2000s, um, it was a place that's now called uh, Rubicon. But when it was his place, Francis Ford Coppola Winery, he had movie memorabilia on the second floor. So there actually was a Tucker car. There was clothing from The Godfather. And there's other things from the famous movies he participated in, like The Great Gatsby. He wrote the screenplay for The Great Gatsby with Robert Redford. And they charge you for the tasting, but the wines were excellent. And there was a Merlot that had a hint of chocolate to it. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like they put chocolate in it. It's yeah. just that the way the grapes worked out, right. you could taste a chocolatey flavor. And now they've he's moved to another location, and it's now called the Rubicon Winery. When you pull in, they want to valley park your car they want to charge you $35 each just for getting out of the car. Wow. Yeah. So I never go there anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that, that's not... Like it used to be nice. bring someone who... My wife doesn't really drink that much. So we'd go and share a tasting. Mm. And But now, no. If you're coming out of the car, you're not going to taste $35 each. Like It's like here's the Disneyland of uh, Napa Valley. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me and the, the, just make a comment about wine for those who are interested. The, one of the things that inspired me of learning about wine was... In early like 2002, I was in New York with a, my new boss on a business trip. We went to the Ruth Chris Steakhouse, opened the wine list, and all these wines are from California. And I knew nothing about any of them. And I thought, you know, I live within an hour of many of these wineries. How stupid of me not to even just go and have a look at it to see where they are. And so over the last 12, 15 years, I've learned about these California wines. If you see a, a Cabernet Sauvignon, which is like the standard wine you have of the steak. Right. And you see it from Napa. It's going to be a premium price because of the name brand recognition of Napa, and then even more so if it's a well-known winery. If you see the same kind of wine from the Central Coast, from the Paso Robles area, it's, and it's the same price as the Napa Cab, it's usually a better wine because the Central Coast doesn't have the same rec- name brand recognition. Hmm. So you're going to have more premium wine from a lesser-known region for the same price as the one from Napa. So the trick is when you're ordering a, in a restaurant, look for the ones that are not not from Napa. Look for the ones, unless you really, really want to stay, show someone something. Stay away from Napa unless you're showing off. Yeah, let's turn it off. <laughs> Central Coast for cabs. You know, that's what kind of one I got here. Central Coast is great for cabs. I have a cabinet from Central Coast. So, so yeah, I have, I'm holding it in my hand right now. Oh, Madavi. Yeah. Madavi. Yeah. Is that good? You recommend that one? Yeah, it's it's okay. Madavi is owned by Constellation Beverages, so it's owned by Multi. Did you drive? Want to have some wine? No. No. Okay. This one's from the North Coast. Yes. California. So are these okay like Mend- wines? Mendocino? Uh, it says here, 
No, it just says North Coast, California. No specific. It would say on the back where it was made. Or where it was, at least where it was uh, bottled. No, I see no... Uh, Napa! It oh, Napa. so it's been bottled in Napa. So they brought in grapes from the North Coast. Oh, okay. Well, duh, Napa is in the North Coast. So they'll, they'll bottle it in Napa, but the grapes came from the North Coast. So North Coast means it's north of the Russian River. It's uh -huh. usually Mendocino County. Which is about a three-hour drive from here. That's, I haven't actually done that track yet. So I haven't driven stopped there. I've, I've driven through. Um, but you learn that the Pinots, the really good ones, come from Russian River. Um, the Cabernet you know, Sauvignon, the decent price, good value ones, come from Paso Robles area. Mm -hmm. Same with the Zinfandels. Um, then you learn that the Oregon has really great white wines. And um, there are other regions with good wines, too, like Santa Maria and Santa Barbara and so on. Um, if, you, if you see some of the movies, if people are interested and they haven't really liked Sideways, was a good movie to see. Oh, it's a great film. I have yeah. it here somewhere. Yeah. Know. And uh, yeah. there's another one called Bottle Shock, which, is, which is not a great movie, but it's a good story about the French, the Paris wine tasting in 1976, where the California wines became world renowned because they beat out French Chardonnays, for example. Yeah, I heard that was a big deal. Yeah. Well, I heard it was back in the day where, you know, a lot of Europeans, you know, in their wine and then. This, at the time, Napa wasn't really well known for its no. wine, no. and they brought it to the to the world scene, and everybody's like, "Holy shit, where did this come from?" Yeah. So Mike Gergich was the winemaker at Chateau Montalena, which is up in Calistoga, and they did the Chardonnay first because you can get a harvest in two years with Chardonnay. You can start getting some cash from it. Cab takes about five to seven years to start getting any cash from it. So you you, you put the, the the Chardonnay to pay for the winery while you're waiting for the cab to ripen. The, the vines to get old enough to start producing grapes. And so his Chardonnay, plus I think it was Frog's Leap, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, those are the two that were sent over to Paris and they beat out the, the, the French wines in 1976. <laughs> so that changed everything for California. And the yeah. movie's called Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock. I gotta, I gotta check that out. Yeah. I really do. Just, and I thought about that. Like being born and raised in this area, yeah. You are surrounded, you know, by great wine companies, or, or you know, yeah. or, or so I'm told. You know, we got Napa, we got Livermore, and Central Coast, but yeah. I have never, you know, I never really looked into it as much. Yeah, it's it's actually very easy to get into. If you go to the major regions, you'll find there's um, magazine booklets that show where the wineries are. Mm -hmm. um, there's about five or six regions that are pretty close to here. Then between here and Los Angeles, there's another few that near Santa Barbara that are worth stopping into. Okay. So yeah, it's we usually make a part of it. If we're, if we're doing a driving trip and we're going close to these areas, we usually make a point of stopping at a couple of wineries. Wow. Okay. Beer? You like beer? You yeah. drink beer? What's your favorite beer? Um. Uh, so I like I like it depends what what I feel like. So if if I don't feel like drinking anything heavy, I okay. have a, a well, Stella Artois. Let's say yeah. you're on death row. Yeah. And you're and you're being told. You have one beer to take before we take you to get executed. Okay. What beer would you choose? It would be uh, it's called La Trap from Eindhoven, Netherlands. It's a Trappist beer. A Dutch beer. Uh, yeah, quadruple. It's a Belgian, like a Belgian Trappist. It's a, actually a Belgian style beer, made in Eindhoven, which is about twenty-five miles from the Belgian border. Mm -hmm. um, called La Trap. You can get it in San Francisco at Healthy Spirit. It's expensive. It's like for a small bottle, it's seven or eight dollars. For a taller bottle, it's about fifteen. But that would be, be fucking good if I pay that yeah. much for yeah. a beer. But yeah. it's it's really special. <laughs> and the thing is, I had to go to the Netherlands for a customer situation, and I went to a town called Helmond, which is about fifteen miles from Eindhoven. Oh. If you went to any restaurant in town, 
the default draft beer on tap was this La Trappe. It's like having Budweiser here. For them, it was like La Trappe. It's like, this is this world-renowned Trappist beer. Yeah. That's the default beer in the restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, so, <laughs> and so I got my curiosity up. And then um, where I go see Neil Lieberman, the comedy coach, he's close to uh, Clement Street, which is in the Richmond district over by the uh, route that takes you to the Golden Gate Bridge. I think it's called a, a Sunset. I'm not sure. There's a parkway that takes you to the Golden Gate Bridge. So it's 19th Avenue, and you go through right. Golden Gate Park, and then there's, an, there's a parkway down there. So near 19th Avenue and Clement Street, uh, of the south side of... I'm saying all the street, street names wrong. Anyway, south side of Golden Gate Park, the main drag that takes you to, to the Golden Gate Bridge at 12th, I think it's 12th, and Clement, there's a, st a store called Healthy Spirit, and they have all these Belgian beers. And so, They're great beers. And so the thing is, I was really surprised to see this when I came back. Wow, yeah. the stuff I saw for the first time in, in Holland. I had a had a similar experience uh, when it came to Foster's Australian beer. Oh, yeah. Like, for the long, I was like, oh, Australian beer, yeah, Foster's. They had a friend from Australia, and she said, Foster's? It's a piece of shit beer back in Australia. Like, nobody, it's everywhere, and it's like the Budweiser of Australia. Uh, yeah, this is the same Heineken. Heineken is really is junk. Yeah. <laughs> and it's made in clear, it's sold in those green bottles which makes it decompose quickly yeah so if you have Heineken keep it in your fridge or somewhere dark don't have it exposed on the shelf because the sunlight will kill it yeah um, but people in Holland don't drink Heineken the yeah. other the, the common beer that's called Grilsch um, which is a light beer like a light um, uh, uh, Pilsner mm-hmm um, and and these Trappist beers are the special beers so the most a widely known Trappist beer is called Saint Sextus, which is close to the French border with Belgium. You have to phone them and re reserve when you pick up your beer and give them the license plate number. They'll only allow one case of beer per license plate number every three months. Mm. This is in such high demand. And the um, they, it's sort of like the reverse of the trying to discourage customers rather than encourage customers. Because the true Belgian beer is, it has to be made by Belgian monks, whose it's a secondary importance in their life. So the, obviously the first importance is celebrating their religion, right? Right. But they can't bring in outside workers. It has to be done made by monks. It has to be made on the property of the monastery. It can't be made elsewhere and called Trappist beer. You can call it a Trappist-style beer yeah. and make it commercially. But it, a true Trappist beer is only like nine in the world. It has have all these regulations, and it's been made this way for hundreds of years by monks. By monks. So the reason was because uh, the water you couldn't you couldn't trust the water until 150 years ago, right? So you right. drank beer or wine so you wouldn't get sick. You never drank the water; someone just peed in the water. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know like but any microorganisms, but you knew that people got sick by drinking the water. Hmm. So you drank beer. Um, um, and you're finding a lot of great American beers, like uh, the best well best known high-end beer in California is the uh, Pliny the Elder, or Pliny the Younger, which is over at um, the Russian River Brewery up in Santa Rosa. If you buy that as an IPA, an India Pale Ale, you have to keep it cold on the way home where it spoils. So you have to go to the Russian River Brewery with a cooler with ice in it, and they'll pull it out of the fridge for you, and it says in there, we must remain uh, refrigerated, yeah. or else it spoils. So if you put them back in the car and don't refrigerate it, it'll be spoiled by the time you get home. Yeah, yeah. So you have to have a cooler ready, take it home, put it straight in the fridge, and even then, it's only good for like two weeks. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm more of a Sierra Nevada guy. Are you? And it's the same deal. So you got to keep that cold. So anyway, that's a lot about beverages. <laughs> well, coming first, you went from professional world to comedy. Yes. How did your family take that? <laughs> I'd like to know that. Oh, um, well, there's no expectation of making a living from this. Oh. And so I haven't left the commercial, the professional world. I'm still right. still in that. Um, they see it as a form of expression. Oh, okay. Yeah. They, they, it's like as if I had... Um, For the most part, they're supportive, though. Yeah. I've just, if I decided to entertain people by playing the piano, I don't see any difference. It's it's not like I've taken on a new persona and um, I've become this insufferable comedian at home. I, mm. You know, I, I keep it cool at home and... and Perform the act when I do the act. Do you have any kids? No. No. Well, at least you, you, you don't have to deal with that awkwardness. You know? Yeah. It's like, because my dad, when, when my dad tries to be funny, I get, I get awkward. I was like, oh no. Why is he up there? Oh, he goes on, he goes on stage? No. He should not be encouraged to, but yeah. but you put enough uh, IPAs in him or whatever wine from, from Livermore or Napa, he will get on stage. <laughs> so, so there is a story tradi- telling tradition in my father's family background and also um, my mom's family is they're all very sharp-witted people they we have a lot of uh, fun when we're getting together and a lot of com- like, a lot of you know conversational comedy between us mm-hmm. none of them are performers okay but but they could you, be if they wanted to They're you just, you mentioned that you have a storytelling background my, my Irish dad's Irish background is a very storytelling background interesting wow so, so the Irish humor as a so it, if you if it's okay to stereotype without stereotyping the people and saying there's a style based on the background, just be yeah. careful not because yeah. you can't say this person's this background they're going to be this way. Uh-huh. But it's more likely for an Irish person to tell a very long story that has funny aspects to it throughout that uh-huh. aren't punchlines. Yeah, it's more to do with the character building character. They build a character in the story and this and like a common story is mm-hmm. let's fool the cop into doing something stupid. Yeah. And it build up, build up, build up, build up, and then the end of the story. Whereas a Jewish style, um, it's a lot more punchlines and a lot more setup and punchline. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see, what I, my understanding, you see a lot of more of the Jewish style in stand up because it's also all the entertainers came from that, that world. They're shorter, quicker. Yeah, quicker and sharper, and um, keep your attention. Yes. So this is what I'm learning with Neil is um, my sets. Um, have a lot of sharp quips in them. Others like to tell a longer story that has a very amusing premise, and their punchline may not be as sharp to the point, but they, they have an interesting punchline. Um, there's others who are hoping the punchline come to them on stage as they're doing their open mic, which is kind of a hard way to do that. It's better to try and do that at home and then go in with your material already ready. I, I've done yeah. that, yeah. definitely. I, I've done yeah. that with half half-ass idea and go up there and just die because... I didn't fully thought it out. Yeah. So this is what I'm doing and writing all these words every week. What I'm writing and throwing away is what I'm seeing some people do on stage. Yeah. <laughs> you're okay. saving yourself the tro- the humiliation. Yeah. That's what you're saving yourself. That's right. Yeah. And so um, the trick of what I'm trying to do then is take these quips and turn them into more story sounding where others are starting with the story sounding dialogue or monologue and then looking for the way to sharpen it up. So I'm coming from a different approach. I already have the sharpness. I need to extend the context. So it's a little easier to listen to than 26 jokes. I really enjoy how strategic you are with all this. I, I really am. I remember the first time I met you. First time I met you was at Friscotti. Mm-hmm. And you put out a binder. You put out a binder with your jokes on them. Oh, because I was afraid of forgetting my jokes. 
And you were the only person up to that point that I've seen done that. And the only other person I can think of that does that, where they, they compile them in such, you know, uh, organized way, is um, Samuel Bade. He has them on his laptop. Very organized. Very mm-hmm. color-coded. And something about you two, uh, I don't know what it is, and, and I don't have it, is you guys really, really strategize and organize and, co- and very professional with it. And I, and I was really impressed the first right. time I saw you with it. I was like, wow, this guy, this guy knows what he's doing. Well. I didn't. I didn't know what I was doing. That's what I was doing. <laughs> you give the illusion, like you know what you're doing. Yeah. So, so let's see. Uh, you haven't seen me the last year, with uh, except for a couple of times. I've just tried not to lately. experiment. Not lately. Not lately. I have not seen you with the binder. Yeah, last, what, what happened to it? Well, I, I stopped. I memorized it rather than using the binder. Okay. Um, last summer, I was trying some experiments where I actually read it out twice and then memorized it and did it one one more time with the audience, memorized. But um, when I first started, I was taking notes of me all the time up because I thought I was going to forget the lines. I hadn't figured out the technique of, of um, linking everything together in a logical way so you know the next one, the next joke is coming and so on. Huh. So the strategy is, and this is one of these things that sounds logical and it's really hard to t- take in and understand completely, is it, it really shouldn't sound like 26 individual jokes. It should sound like four or five stories that have jokes linked together like this joke reminds me of the next joke reminds me of the next one and that's partly writing it's partly attitude and it's partly the way you intone the, the joke partly attitude what's the best attitude to approach comedy do you think well it's, it's not um, I don't mean it's bringing a professional attitude to the stage which you, which you should I mean it's the attitude of the joke What is this joke about you're annoyed because this happened is this joke you're I'm surprised I didn't think that would possibly happen is this like come on everybody knows this you know, every joke has its own attitude. Uh, here's a surprise. Here's something obvious. Here's something really stupid. Here's something I did that was stupid. Okay, I gotta admit that you expect me to do this, but I really like this. Mm. The, you know, I'm trying to. This is the attitude of the joke. The attitude needs to build on the previous attitude, or else the audience thinks it's just um, 26 random things being told to them. The reason I say 26 is I found that if you have 26, you can pretty much fill uh, five minutes of 26 punchlines. They're not all individual jokes. Sometimes they're the joke plus a couple of tags. But 26 is the number I've sort of worked for. 26 is the magic number of punchlines. It's just worked out. In five minutes. It's just worked out. Okay. Um, it may actually, it's not a rule, because if you have longer setup and punchline that are compelling, it's right. possible it's 15. Um, Neil's guideline for beginners is 12 jokes, four stories, three jokes per story. Okay, wow. So you're starting out today. Don't worry about... It doesn't. That's not five minutes. If it's two minutes, and it's really compelling, and you're just starting out, you've only been doing this for a month, or you're just thinking about doing, you want to go next next week and do it for the first time. If you did two really good minutes, that's a, an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, the guys who go up there have two minutes and try to fill up five minutes of two minutes of material, which is not an accomplishment. <laughs> it's a waste of the audience's time. Um, so, I'm not. I'm. I've come a long way and I have a little more enthusiasm than others might about the writing side of it mm-hmm. so I'm perfectly okay with setting that standard for myself but I'm not saying that's what you have to have if you haven't done this before 12 jokes you know, four stories, three jokes per story and, and that's a good starting set How did you handle bombing before this before you started really I've strategizing and putting it together in such a, a way to afterwards where you, you planned everything out everything's expected and you still bomb because I'm sure it still happens. 
How, how do you handle the, the, those I've, two? I've two only bombed times. like really badly once in the last two years. You only bombed once because, in the last two years because um, it's I've, I've because Neil's been doing this for forty years since last uh, year ago, uh, so October when I started when I took the first set that he had prepared for me. The set was a good set. Now, it's is junior compared to what I can do now because I've learned so much in the last year and a half. But the set was okay. The set had actually three or four solid jokes. Had actually three or four of them I still use. Um, but my performance needed a lot of work. And I knew that going up that I'll get some laughs, but I'll make all kinds of mistakes. But the first time I went up with a new set, I got three or four laughs, which was more than I was getting before I met Neil. Mm -hmm. So I went, um, and the thing is, I was trying all kinds of crazy stuff before I met Neil. Like I was trying to do um, takeoffs on Batman and Robin and stuff. Which had some good material in it, but I had no idea how to do a voice. And people were saying, "You know, I can't tell the difference between one character and another." <laughs> like I had a Star Trek send up, and um, and I had a, a joke where you know um, Star Trek: Next Generation, and Jordy was the blind guy that had the visual glasses right. to help him see, and so he's having an argument with Worf, and um, I can't remember. I got to this, and someone like. The setup was, uh, Jordy was busy talking to one of the privates, and Worf says, this is a naval vessel. There are no privates on this ship. This is only, this, these are Navy rankings. And Jordy says, are you, are you telling me you've never seen, a, uh, never seen any privates on this ship at all? And Worf says, no. Well, maybe you're the one who should be wearing the stupid glasses. <laughs> right? And I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, but that's I, a good one. But I, mean, I couldn't do the voices. Okay. And so it was ridiculous thing I was attempting where I, I'm really not a skilled voice actor and I was trying to do voice acting I was trying to do way too much and Neil's like forget all that like you know, don't even try that because unless you really want to be a voice actor and do voiceovers for cartoons if that's what you want then here's the skill I've seen I've seen since seen a documentary on Netflix about people who do this for a living right and they say the if you want to do this you will do this this reading in four different voices without thinking about it and those voices better be consistent throughout the whole reading mm -hmm. that's what these guys do if you can't do that you can't make a living Right. So it's you know it's all or nothing. These guys are all in. Um, and so, really, um, the way this is done is, um, it's very straightforward but purposeful. And so you're not trying to extend a joke with with one laugh and five sort of half-ass punchlines tagging it. You just if you only can come with one laugh, that's it. Go to the next one. But you try to s s sequence them so they have a relationship. To the before and after, and once you got those sort of things uh, fitted in, um, it, you have a decent set. So I came out with a decent set, and the the reason I bombed last September was I tried something at the Keys, which is a, a pub at Ninth and Keys on Thursday nights at eight thirty. I've been there. I like it. You get yeah. free popcorn. Priscilla, yeah, Priscilla Torres runs that. <laughs> it's really sad. That I'm saying that the free popcorns. No, it's a great room though. So I was tired of the set I was doing, which is normal uh -huh. after you've done it about twenty five times. I was tired. So I had some stuff that yeah, um, you get burned out. Sometimes. That Neil didn't like, and I thought this stuff deserves a hearing. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it up and had it on paper, and I was reading out to the audience, and they're laughing at every other joke, like this is pretty good. So I memorized it over the weekend, did a Woodhams, the whole thing bombed. And I showed the video of it. So I videotape everything I do on my iPhone. Um, and he said, "Well, that's yeah, because it's full of dad jokes. <laughs> Sorry, it's full of it's full of what he calls dad jokes. Like, oh, come on, dad, that's like, that's like awful puns and stuff." 
And I thought it wasn't that bad, but <coughs> the audience was turning their chairs and talking to each other while I was presenting. Okay, yeah. Dad jokes. Yeah. So the thing about um, I'm that was kind of like I would say it was bombing because really the set wasn't that great anyway. The set okay. was a lot worse than I thought it was. The keys got a really good response. And um, it's sort of like one of the jokes was, um, you know, all this talk about El Nino. I'm not really sure what that is, but I can tell you what I do know. When El Nino comes, all the state employees will demand parent, uh, what do you call parental leave for El Nino. And it's just humorous. It's not that great. And I got a big laugh at, at Keys, and I got like crickets at Wooden, so the same joke. <laughs> right. Well, each venue has its own rhythm to it, you know? It, it does. But the thing about the stuff that Neil has, and I have worked on, say, this is what our working set right now, is even if the audience doesn't laugh, I'm not bombing. Oh, so it's a different definition of bombing. Yeah. I'm just, you know, the guys at Woodham's have heard it three times. In some cases, they've heard these jokes 40 times. Mm -hmm. So the regulars there aren't going to laugh anymore. I may get no attention whatsoever to me, but when I watch the video, okay, I nailed it the way with the improvements we discussed last week. Got it. So so I had moved forward with the set, even though the audience didn't care. Fascinating. So, so so if you do bring this to an audience that has never seen your set before, you're that much better already. That's right. So here's the deal. And this is what many of the comics don't realize, and this could save people a lot of time. I've only seen one of the guy even bring out a camera. And Brady Holt started doing this too. He started recording himself at least audio. Mm-hmm. I've recorded every set I've done in the last two years. I missed two because I'd made a technical error with my iPhone. I jumbled it. I, I thought I had it, hadn't started yet, and I turned it off by mistake once. And the other time, the guy's like, you're on now. And I wasn't ready to set my phone up. He yelled um, at you to get on now? Yeah, because the guy was, well, the guy for Scotty, the guy on Tuesday nights who. Oh, yeah, <laughs> David, the yeah. tall guy? Yeah, tall yeah, guy. God. Yeah, yeah <laughs> he can be very threatening with had, his long fingers. He had one hit of something too many once when he was young, and I think, it hurt him, I think he hurt himself permanently. But you're on now. And, <laughs> um, with my iPhone, yeah. the, the fear you have is a thing falling over. Right. So was, I was at a flea market in Palm Springs last summer, or spring, and uh, this guy had a... A, a device that was flexible with metal and rubber and the idea was to mount your cell phone in the grill of your car so you could put your GPS on your cell phone and see your see where you're going at the grill of your car so you so it had like fingers that would fit into the oh, air vents right air vents sorry I yeah. thought you meant like the front grill no, 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 I'm I like meant, whoa <laughs> grill's the wrong word front like the air vents right the air vents got it yeah and so yeah. I said well, can you, I want, all I wanted to have this thing sit flat on the table and hold this hold my phone up so I can record myself in video and yeah no problem whatsoever so now to have that if the guy had gone yeah now I, I could set this up very quickly and, and record myself but I have like 230 or 250 videos of myself on YouTube that are not for public viewing. They're for me to evaluate and Neil to evaluate my performance. Got it. So um, when I go up an open mic, I'm really performing for an audience that may not even be there. Um, the real target performance is, audience for the performance is people who would book you for a paying show. Showcases or at the improv. Or even better. Got now, it. maybe I haven't seen any of those people because I haven't been in the places where they, they hang out. But my immediate goal is to in January or February to do a guest set at somewhere like the Improv or Rooster Teeth Feathers or Tommy T's. Yeah. And with, you're prepared already. With a decent 10 minutes. Got it. And so I'm improving and improving and improving towards that. So if I get no response of Woodham's, it doesn't matter as long as what I did on the video is an improvement over last week. 
Got it. Yeah. So, so um, I'm not really there to. I like it when they're entertained, but I'm not. My purpose is not to entertain the audience. My purpose is to improve. So I was talking to Pete Munoz about this and uh, to Walker, and they said, you know, you got to get out of the open mics eventually and get into more showcases. That's when you get in front of the real audiences. Because mm-hmm. the open mics, if th- two thirds of the room are the comics, mm-hmm. they're really not going to find it funny because they're spending a lot of time thinking about what they're set, or they've been writing so much that they're not amused by the same things that a general audience isn't amused by. So you learn that um, there are a couple places you can go as an open mic where you get a real audience. One of them is the uh, Poorhouse Bistro close to the Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. They're mostly musicians. It has to be a clean set, no, no swear words. They really don't want to talk about you talking about sex in front of them. It's just families eating dinner. Right. But I have a clean set, so I'm not really that worried about it. Um, but I don't go there more than once a month. I don't want them to hear my set so often they've, they're bored with it. I want them to hear it fresh. So I get a real, a real fresh response rather than uh, kind of a disinterested response from the crowd that's not, not following the, what's going on on stage. Um, but I've, I can't say I've really bombed badly, uh, except when I was first trying out a few things that didn't really work out. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last year, I wouldn't say, except for that one time when I tried some, just some material that wasn't my core set just to see what would happen. Mm. And it didn't really disappoint me because it wasn't a big deal. Does that mean that you're not really big on improving to go off the, the rails a bit? I, I won't I won't improv live. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I have come up with some... So some, you stick with the script? Well, I stick with the script, or if I'm going to do something off script, I plan it just before I go on. So an example, um, at the Keys, I noticed there is a... They have a uh, vending machine for lottery tickets. Then they have a card reader, magstripe reader, or a barcode reader uh, on the wall, and the and the sign on the barcode reader says "More ways to win." Plus, they have the schedules of the sports teams on the wall. So it occurred to me, isn't that funny? That's so close to the 49ers poster, "More ways to win." So what's the joke? Okay, so the joke is, this has got to be the most optimistic place on earth. Where else would you see a sign that says "More ways to win" right next to a 49ers poster? Yeah, right. And that, I came out with that five minutes before I came on. But I didn't do it live in front of the audience. I didn't form the joke in front of the audience live. I formed it five minutes before I went on. I rehearsed it in my head three times and then went on and said it that way. How do you do with hecklers? We don't get that many hecklers. You don't get hecklers? No. Um, you get a lot of people... Have you been heckled? Not like you suck type heckle, no. What kind of hecklers do you get? Well, you get helpers. Like helpers? You, you know what I mean? Yeah, people they're, who think they're helping, but they're not. Yeah, they're trying to add to your joke. Got it. Or one guy's going, what? You know, like, you have to wait for someone to shut up so you can go to the next joke. Um, so for those listening who haven't done this before, who are thinking about it, the atmosphere at an open mic, when I say they're ignoring me, they know me. And it's not like, it's nothing personal. It's not like I'm a nervous new person who's not getting any love. Who's it's ignoring like, you? Well, Ed Woodham's, if they heard my set 25 times. The comedian's ignoring yeah, you. And they're ignoring me. It's fine. Because I'm ignoring them. Oh, that's if the audience is ignoring you. Yeah, that's fine. But it. I'm just saying, to a new person, don't let that be a problem. That's just me and them interacting. Not ignoring me as a person, just as oh, Kelly's set again. Mm-hmm. But the attitude for a new person is neutral to positive. It's never negative. No one ever boos you. No one ever says you suck. No one. People have a lot of tolerance for a new person. It's a new performer. Okay, they, they understand. Okay, these jokes are a new person's types of jokes. Okay, um, don't go up there with toilet jokes expecting to win win over the audience. Right. Try to make them observational jokes about everyday life. Um, but it's neutral to positive. You're more likely to get a compliment that was uh, 
audience is not reacting and then people come up and say you know that was actually quite good now they really like that part of your set even though they didn't laugh so people are enjoying what you're doing even if they aren't laughing even when I was doing some of these awful impressions I had people say that was very clever even though the whole audience had ignored me except for one person that kept me going um, but uh, you, you get the hecklers my understanding I haven't had this personal experience yet at the places like the clubs where people have paid for two drinks so they're already into this evening for 70 bucks each maybe they bought dinner two drinks and they paid for to get in the, the door therefore they think they have a right to to criticize the comedian on stage and um, I haven't seen that done too much I've seen it done if people um, step on sensitivities now mm -hmm. sometimes a comedian is trying to be an edgy comedian and they know they're saying things that aren't that cool with the audience like they have their say something that's not accepted by except by homosexual people you know your fridge door is open by the way do you care um, I just noticed that. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, I saw a video of Joan Rivers in her last year of life when she said something about um, handicapped people. Um, how it was, I can't remember what the joke was, but it was something. About, I saw it. Yeah, something about yes. the person, the child can't walk, therefore let them die or something, let them perish. It was, some, it was something as, as, as heartless as that, meant to be funny. Mm -hmm. And someone said, that's not funny. And then she went after the guy in the audience um but she was doing something edgy it wasn't right. like she was telling a joke about wine tasting and, and someone said you're boring it was, she was actually trying to evoke a response from the audience um I, I've never seen someone who was doing something meant to be uh positive and enjoyable by everybody get heckled in a ne negative way so in I, some ways you're saying that those who do get heckled are usually looking for it they're not looking to be heckled, but they are pushing the audience. They're allowing themselves to get heckled. They're putting, they're exposing themselves to a situation where they could be heckled. Let's put it that way. And they know they are sometimes, and sometimes they have a response ready, like they want to be heckled, so they can. Sometimes I think some people who've been this for a long time mm -hmm. look forward to being heckled, so they can take it, take out some frustration on the audience. All right. Um, I've seen people here yell at the audience to shut up because they're talking. And maybe the reason they're talking is because their set isn't all that interesting. So they get angry that no one's listening, so they shut the hell up. And, and um, there was one fellow who got in trouble with some of the audience because he thought he was screaming at the guy's girlfriend. Oh. So you can't talk to a girlfriend that way. And they all kind of... Was this an open mic or showcase? Yeah, open mic. Oh. So. See, an open mic, you don't have power to do that, really. <laughs> it's an open mic. Yeah. You know? Well, okay. so, sometimes a bartender will say, shut up, everybody, and that's okay. But you really... Oh, yeah. The bartender it, owns the place. You know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying? So that's, but that's but, but if you're up there and the audience isn't listening, maybe there's something wrong with your set. Oh. Or if you're like me, I understand they've heard this too many times. I'm not there to entertain them anymore. I'm there to make my own improvements. You're doing it for you. I'm doing it for me and my uh, the quality of my set. Okay. Yeah. What are some of your comedy inspirations? Um... Well, stuff you'd see on television when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. So we used to watch the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show, quite a bit. Um, the, the difference that the people who have been born since the 80s may not understand, who are used to social media as being normal, is that when I was a kid, um, first of all, a video recording at home, that didn't come around to 1980. So in the 70s, no one had a home VCR unless you're in the industry. So you didn't see the show too bad. You had to schedule your life around the show you wanted to see or wait for a rerun. Uh -huh. So if you want to see a certain performer on a variety show, you better be in front of the television at 8 o'clock on Sunday evening or you're not going to see it, right? 
Um, so these shows had amazing ratings. Like the Johnny Carson normally get 13 million people. You know, David Letterman, when he retired, was getting like 3 million people because there's only so much variety now. Um, so you'd all watch the same thing. And um, so Johnny Carson was a, a big influence. Um, uh, Robin Williams somehow, but not, not more, not really as a stand-up, more like as an, an actor and a personality. Um, Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld was always the best sh act on the Letterman show before he had his own show. Mm. Um, David Letterman. So the thing about Letterman, the Letterman show was he's so irreverent. Not CBS version, but the NBC version before he be went big on CBS. When he right. went to CBS, it became mainstream. Mm -hmm. Actually, a little bit boring. I really stopped watching it. But when it was on NBC, it was edgy and youthful. Like he'd make fun of the sponsors. Right, because he was later on in, in the in the night, right? Yeah, it was after twelve thirty. It was after Carson. Exactly. And so he was making fun of the fact he's on television. Like he was just making fun of everything. Um, he was the first guy to have actual uh, a rock band as the, the the show band. Before that was all like um, big band type, type right. stuff, right? So um, Letterman's show, he'd have one horrible show a week, three so-so shows, and one that was just excellent. And you'd never know unless you watched all five which one's which one's going to be which. Right? Kept you guessing. Yeah. <laughs> but the great show was really like tape that and keep it forever. The awful show was I wish I hadn't stayed up so late. Um, but Seinfeld, when he was on, was always one of the best shows of the week. And then we grew up with uh, Second City Television in Canada, which had a run on NBC for a year. What is that? So that was like John Candy and Martin Short and uh, Andrea Martin, okay. um, Dave Thomas. Um, Second City. Second City Television. Chicago. Well, it was out of, it was out of uh, Toronto. Mm -hmm. So there was a Second City in Toronto and Chicago. So the guys, the original cast of Saturday Night Live, like Dan Aykroyd and John, uh, I wanted to say John Belushi, but no, he came from National Lampoon. Um, Gilda Radner, they, they came from Second City in Chicago. Well, the Second City in Toronto had these people like John Candy, who you might remember as an actor who passed away a little while ago. Yeah. Um, so we saw that show. It, it was like Letterman. Like um, <coughs> one out of five was horrible. One out of five was excellent. The other three were so-so. When they're when they're great, they're really great. Um, so that, that was the sketch comedy. Um, we never really went to see live comedians when I was growing up. Like I don't remember ever paying to see a comedy show. Um, there's a lot of uh, comedy on, ra on Canadian radio. Uh, there's a lot of great Cana Canadian comedians. Um, so there'd be. Sh uh, well, there's a pretty big comedy scene, is there not? Where you're from? There is, but um, not. We weren't exposed to it live. We were exposed to it through the radio and television. Okay. Yeah. So what was the first comedy uh, show you've been to then? Uh, first show I paid to see a comic on stage? Yes. Uh, probably here. Um, I can't remember if I saw a show. I saw a show at the Improv with, with Hannibal as the host. I can't remember who the closer was. Um, Hannibal Thompson? Hannibal Thompson, yeah. Like only, only in the last couple of years. Um, I went to see a show down in that place in uh, Morgan City. Uh was it like an old theater that the Granada? Yeah, the Granada. Yeah, because yeah. uh, I wanted to see what some of the people I knew had seen open mics do when they're getting paid, and and yeah, it was a little tighter and a little more thought out. Um, but I really no, I hadn't really paid to see. Uh, oh, we, I saw a show in Seattle years ago with a friend because she wanted to go. Um, was it a date? Yeah, it was kind of a date at the time. Kinda yeah. of a date. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess it didn't work out. No, but it, but it was. Um, 
but I've seen a show at Rooster Teeth Feathers and see my feeling about the improv was I'm not interested in sitting through an hour and a half of dirty sex and I had a feeling that that's what I'm likely to get exposed to if I went to the improv yeah yeah. I'm not I changed my mind since now I know it's up to the individual performers mm -hmm. but um, I don't find that funny I, I, I don't find a dirty sex humor funny at all um, I prefer just the, the subject of it, or do you feel of, feel like they're not executing it well? Even, even if they execute, I don't think it's funny. I think I think people default to it too too quickly. Yeah, it's an, it's a it's a cheap joke. It's a cheap, uh, cheap laughs. That's what they're called. So the chase is so much more interesting than the than the end result. Right. Um, it's the journey, not the not yeah. the end of the journey. I guess. And my my feeling is some of these movies back when the code was in effect, like the, when they make the lovemaking scene is the the train going through the tunnel, right? It's like they they cut to metaphors about sex. The rain, the rain comes down. The, the sun comes out. You know the, that sort of thing. But the movie's about the chase, mm -hmm. the to getting to that point, and then they then they show after the, the lovemaking, they come back to the scene, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but the full movie, they dealt with the sex part of it with through metaphors, and the movie's still completely compelling. Um, a good example is Out of the Past, which is a, one of the film noir movies, um, later ones in the fifties. It had uh, Howard Hughes' girlfriend in it. Um, Jane Greer, who was absolutely beautiful when she was young, mm -hmm. um, and the whole thing's about double life and 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 very like a lot of film noir type subject to it, and he he falls in love with a gangster's girlfriend basically, right? And but when they consummate the relationship, it doesn't go into dirty sex details. It's like they the moon comes out and the, you know this the, all these metaphors. The movie's still very compelling, so um, I I feel that. Um, you can entertain an audience just fine if you stick to the chase. Got it. You don't have to go to the details of I did this with my, with my wife last night. I just don't find that funny at all. And so I don't want to pay to see that either. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't really go to a lot of professional com comedy. I do plan to, uh, it's been suggested a couple times to go to somewhere like Cobbs in San Francisco and see the real, the top flight headliners and see what they actually do. Hmm. And I should go on a Thursday and a Saturday and see that actually, even though it looks like it's impromptu and improvised, it really is the same rehearsed set. It's been rehearsed to look impromptu and improvised. Interesting. Like one of the things people don't realize is Groucho Marx, everything he did was scripted. Even on uh, his, his game show, uh, You Bet Your Life. But, but he presented it as if he just thought of it that second. That was his genius. Like it, it looks like he just improvised on the camera. And so that's that's a lot. That's really it's really hard work to make it look like you didn't do any work. Mm. So what's your creative process like, David? Um, what I've had to learn, and so what you when I started, you think that you wait for inspiration, and then you go and you write it down, and then you go home and and, and turn it into something you can use. Mm -hmm. But you don't do anything until you, the inspiration hits you. And what I've learned from working with Neil is. Um, inspiration will hit you sometimes and you just start doing the work. So, like that thing about, I just thought in the morning, um, isn't it funny how when you go to a wine tasting, their expectation is you're going to be there like it's a pub. They're surprised you actually just want to do a tasting and get out of there, like the original purpose of a wine room. So what can I do with that? So as I wrote that first line, said, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting how wine tasting rooms are like pubs. And yeah, actually pubs are becoming like wine tasting rooms. What would be a ridiculous way to end that? Well, I wasn't expecting to get notes for tasting notes for Bud Light. So often when you start writing out the subject matter, what the really important thing is 
and a mistake, not a mistake, but just a tendency I have to go off is um, the more realistic your premises are, and if you can work a very realistic premise into a funny piece of humor, it hits home a lot harder than if it's something ridiculous that, okay, that was kind of funny, but it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, um, I, I'm fascinated with this thing that in popular mechanics magazine, like in the late fifties, prediction was by 2000, everybody would have a flying car. Yeah. Right. And so I wrote some stuff about flying cars, but no one has a flying car. So it's really not as clever as someone saying, do you ever notice when you're in your grocery store, you see this and yeah, everybody sees this, but never thought before how funny that was until the comedian brought it up. That's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And you don't get there through waiting for inspiration. You get there by just writing about your experiences and seeing anything funny in there. So it's possible to write like 1,500 words of just garbage, but are, but, are, but are about your experience. And then, okay, wait a minute, I just took that last one and just twisted it this way, now I have a joke. Right. So it's a lot of just making yourself write. Uh, Neil's opinion is there's no such, no such thing as a writing block. It, it, it just, just write. Because it, it's first draft. Just write. Who yeah. cares? Huh. Um, I can't remember the name of the movie. There's a movie with Sean Connery in his senior years with a young black actor. And the young black actor is playing a student at a, a high-end school in the East Coast somewhere. And oh, yes. Looking for something. Yeah. Oh, yes, 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 and yes. Sean Connery was, the full t- was a writer who was sort of like a hermit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Great film, by the way. And he's sitting there at his typewriter, and he's going, I'm writing a first draft. Do I care if it's any good or not? No, I don't care. And I'm typing on the table like pretending on a typewriter. Um, I don't care. It's the first draft. Just type. Who cares? Fix it later. And I thought, wow. <laughs> Actually, that's really... Because what people do when they're students is think, I'm not going to write anything until I come up with a piece of genius. Yeah. And then you see... Um, if you ever see Trey Parker or Matt Stone interviewed who do South Park, mm-hmm. they paired up in film school in one of the big schools in Colorado, um, and they said they made a new movie every week. And it was a, it, they made, in a 13-week course, made 13 crappy movies. But they learned so much from that process, they didn't care about the content as they did about the process of production. Where other classmates spent 12 weeks trying to come up with something that was inspired genius, and then had a week to scramble to make it happen. Yeah. And so they never really did anything useful because they spent so much time worrying about is this any good or not. Where Matt Parker and uh, Mark, Matt Stone and Trey Parker were more concerned, let's get the volume out and we'll learn how this works. So they were happier with either 13 or 26 crappy short films than having one great film that took all term to think about and they only had four weeks to shoot it. It's kind of like the Woody Allen effect, huh? Yeah. You make so many films and once in a while, that's a really good film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's, that's that's very interesting. All so, right, here's another question. It's probably the, one of the last questions. We're, we're near the hour mark. Oh, wow. If a young comedian comes up to you and yeah. says, David Kelly, I need your help, Godfather. Help me with my comedy. I'm new. What would you recommend to this young comedian? Okay, well, um, first I'd recommend that Neil Lieberman's put a page up on Facebook called Comedy Device That Doesn't Suck. And he has like 17 excerpts in it now. I would read through those 17 and I would get Neil's CD. Which, <laughs> really, because he has, he lays it all out. Yeah. And he, he recorded it back when he was expecting to listen to an audio tape. And it explains, like, here's what you do and here's how it works and here's the work you need to do. So you direct him to Neil. I need to direct him to Neil's stuff that Neil offers at least um, without maybe, I would, if you want to sign up with someone who'd tell you how to do this properly, sure. But if, at least start with Neil's stuff about 17, he has 17 things that don't suck. Um, so what I'd say is, 
um, try to write for an hour a day. Don't worry about the quality of your writing. Try to put together four stories, three jokes each, as short as language as possible and memorize it and come up to an open mic and, t and tell those four stories. Don't worry if it's only two and a half minutes or three minutes. Everybody else in the room will be pleased if you save two minutes so everybody else can go up two minutes earlier. No one's going to be disappointed that you went too, too short. Just tell the host, look, I only got three minutes. Mm -hmm. um, it's okay to only go to one mic a week if you're starting out, and, but do video yourself on your smartphone or, or a camera or ask someone to help you if you don't have that. So you can watch yourself afterwards and see how it went. What you're trying to do is tell half the, the stories about yourself and the other half about common observation. If it's all about common observation, you don't leave any of yourself with the audience. If it's all about yourself, they get bored of you talking about yourself too much. So it should be real fun. It's half about yourself, half about stuff you see in everyday life that other people can relate to. Um, it's okay if the punchlines are, are simple and um, don't have to be uh, ingeniously inspired. It can just be, oh, that was funny. It's okay. You'll possibly have 11 that don't get a response and maybe you're lucky and you get first time you go up, you get one that does get a response. Actually, often first timers get a better response than the routine people because no one's seen that before and it's a strange way of presenting themselves that the audience hasn't seen before. Mm. So sometimes first timers do really, really well. And I've seen first timers go up with really, like, what we call dad jokes. You know, one guy went up and, and did like, uh, used to try techniques I learned in the post office for comedy and I found I was always late with my delivery. You know, that's kind of stuff that you and I would write and throw on the floor. But the audience liked it because they hadn't seen this guy before. And also he brought in his friends who were all laughing at everything he said. Um, it does help to bring a few confederates in, a few family or friends yeah. laugh at you. <laughs> but don't be worried about it. Try it out. Um, there's an expression in innovation which is fail quickly and often. So it, uh, going up and failing in quotation marks is actually a success because rather than thinking about it and worrying about it, just go up and try it. Right. But the fact you actually want to do it, an acting coach said to me, the fact you're interested and willing to put some effort into it means you have talent. Don't compare yourself to people who have been experienced. The fact you're motiva self-motivated to actually be here means you have talent. So the I, fact you asked a question already means you have talent. I agree with you 100% yeah. with that statement. Yeah. So well, the last thing I wanted to say before we leave is I'll be at a showcase at, oh the, yeah, Blue, please. at the Blue Lagoon uh, Lounge in Santa Cruz. We performed together at Blue Lagoon, didn't we? We might have. We, yeah, I remember seeing you there when I performed. Yeah, December 17th, the Thursday evening. Starts at 8.30. It's at 923 Pacific Avenue in the downtown area of Santa Cruz. And there's a showcase. Usually a, a fellow named DNA runs it. Usually yeah, great seven, room. Seven or eight com comedians. But it, it's not an open mic. It actually is a showcase. He invites the performers to, pre to present there. So... I'm working now towards that performance at the open mics I do. That's my end goal, mm -hmm. is to have a very good set for that, that December 17th show at the Blue Lagoon. December 17th, you can catch David Kelly at the Blue Lagoon. Great room. I had fun there. Uh, it was the first time I've been there, and it's that's a great fucking room. I can't put it in any, any other way. Where can people find your stuff online? I really don't have stuff online. Um, it's I'm not really doing that right now. Can they follow you online? Not really. Uh, you can <laughs> find me on Facebook. Um, I do present where I usually go to the open mics. Um, just two quick open mics that are, are worth going to. Or, um, there's plenty that are, but um, the Woodhams in Santa Clara by the Santa Clara Auto Mall on Stevens Creek Boulevard are next to the Hyundai dealer. And uh, Caravan on Wednesday nights, which is right next to the Greyhound bus station in downtown San Jose. 
uh, Cafe Frascati next to Original Joe's on Monday nights. And also Tuesday nights is more music, but they will take comedians on Tuesday night. Monday nights the comedy night. Will they catch you on Monday or Tuesday? Monday. So Monday. I'll go to Monday. I'll go to Cafe Frascati, Woodhams, and then the Poet and Patriot in Santa Clara, Santa Cruz. Sorry, Santa Cruz. Cruz. Um, Tuesdays I either go to the Poorhouse Bistro only and don't do much else, or I'll go to San Francisco and go to the Brainwash and a place called OMG. Wednesday is a caravan. There's usually the Underground in Redwood City is on Wednesdays as well. But I don't go there very often. And then Thursday is the Keys Taps Room, I think it's called, on Ninth and Keys. Plus, there's a really great room called the Usher Inn in Hayward on Sundays. It's late, like starts at 10, but it's a real audience. That's not just common. Usher Inn. I've never heard in. of that one. Um, it's it's a mixture of poetry, uh, rap music, and, and other types of performance. So a lot of friends and family there, a lot of um, significant others of the comedians and performers go there. So it's not everybody there's a stand-up comic when you do their own five minutes. And when you say, how's everyone doing, they actually respond. <laughs> Usually you say, how's everyone doing, you get like, uh, you, know, yeah. you get nothing. So uh, Usher In is a real revelation. Um, but if you're doing this and you're going to open mics, save those special rooms with real audiences for like once a month because you don't want them to get used to your set because they'll give you the real feedback is this working or not. The open mics won't give you the real feedback. You have to tape yourself on your iPhone and watch it yourself and see how well you're doing. You can't judge yourself in the open mics by the audience reaction. You have to watch yourself on tape and see how you're doing. There's no other way to do it. There you go. David, thank you for coming. You're welcome. And um, it was very insightful. See you around. Thank you. <laughs>